0: I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and changemakers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying Sean the podcast, Delaney, then you, you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. On today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Dan Dworkas, who is the attending emergency room physician and professor at USC's Keck School of Medicine in Los Angeles at USC Medical Center. And he's also the founder of the Emergency Mind Project. And what Dan focuses on is human performance under pressure, especially in times of emergency and crisis and Dan really is one of the more fascinating people I've had the pleasure of speaking with around making great decisions in the most high stress and pressure filled environments. So obviously we talk about what he does in the emergency room, but what we do is we make this super practical and talk about how we can use his affecting effective decision making processes no matter what we're doing in life. This is one of those really wide ranging conversations all around different concepts of performing under pressure developing and handling stress and uncertainty, how we can develop ourselves around self-mastery, how we figure out what our purpose is in life and tie back to that, and so much more. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation with Dr. Dan Dworkas. I have to tell you about the product I'm obsessed with right now. And when I say obsessed, I mean it. I am honestly obsessed and using this continually. So this is my Brava smart oven. So I actually used a Brava at a friend's house a few weeks ago. And after using it, I said I have to reach out to the team at Brava and bring them on as a partner of the podcast because of how much I love my Brava smart oven. So Brava is the world's fastest and most advanced smart oven that cooks with the power of light. So I had no idea about this, but cooking with light is actually two to four times faster than any other cooking technology. So being a busy father with two kids, I need something that's going to cook delicious, healthy meals, is really fast and super convenient. And my Brava checks the box on all three of those. Just last night, I whipped up a mouth-watering salmon. You know, one of the ones with the, the crispy, flaky outside, but then juicy, tender inside. And I also had a side of broccoli and butternut squash. And I cooked this all to perfection at the same time. It doesn't matter if it's breakfast, dinner, dessert. My Brava takes care of it all. So when I said it was fast and convenient, the team at Brava honestly knocked this out of the park. Imagine cooking your entire meal just with the press of a button. All you do is select what you're cooking, load your tray, and press the green button. They have thousands of fully automated recipes created by professional chefs, so your meal is perfect every single time. And a really crazy part, Bravo regularly updates with new recipes and cooking modes all for free. There really isn't a more convenient and impressive cooking experience I've ever had. Cook crispy, bubbly pizza in 10 minutes, eggs and toast at the same time. You can even do a tray of roasted potatoes in 15 minutes, all with zero preheating. And one really fun thing, my, my kids love watching this, is you can actually watch your food cook on the Brava app, which is just really fun. It's like having an automated sous chef right at your side. So if you want to start having healthier, better meals, check out brava.com and make sure to enter code What Got You There at Checkoff for $200 off. Yes, $200 off. That's www.brava.com, and at checkout, enter code WHAT GOT YOU THERE. If you're someone who's looking to join a hyper-growth company that's global and 100% remote, then you might want to listen up and hear all about the exciting job opportunities at Clipboard Health. Most of us have known someone who never got the health care they needed, you know, one of those people who fell through the cracks. That's because America's hospitals are short-staffed. They don't have enough nurses, so patients don't get the care they deserve. I've personally had family members not get the care they deserve, which is why I appreciate and care so much about what Clipboard Health is doing. Clipboard Health matches nurses with hospitals and nursing homes so that patients get the care they need and nurses find the work they want. Clipboard Health is fixing a broken healthcare staffing marketplace, and they're also scaling a hyper-growth business at the exact same time. Clipboard Health is a Silicon Valley unicorn, and they're looking for people to join their mission to fix staffing in healthcare and give nurses more opportunities. Clipboard Health is looking for great software engineers, product managers, and operations leaders to join them today. They're global, and remember, they're 100% remote, so no matter where you live in the U.S. or the world, they want to talk to you. You can check out great opportunities at clipboardhealth.com forward slash WGYT. That's clipboardhealth.com forward slash W-G-Y-T. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Dan, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Doing really well. I'm fired up for this one, but I would love to know. So you're a few minutes before entering the ER. I I really want to know what's going on in your mind, and then what are the things you're doing just to get yourself in an optimal state to enter that environment?
1: Yeah, man. Let's jump right in. I, I think that's something that's really evolved for me over the time of being an ER doctor. And there's sort of like... The, like the question behind the question you're asking, right? Are like, what are the phases of getting ready to perform under pressure, right? So there's like the stuff you do the day before and the weeks before. There's the stuff you do the moments before. Then there's the stuff you do in like the micro moments before, like the seconds before. And those are all really different sort of skill sets with different sort of patterns to them. Um, and and then actually like even even within that wall you're performing under pressure, there's the stuff that you do to regain your sense of equilibrium when things go sideways. And those are all sort of like related but different, topics. And different mindsets. But um, for me, the biggest one that I do as I'm going in, right? So that's that like the moments before kind of space uh, is that I really try to reconnect to the deeper purpose of why I'm there, right? I know things are going to be hard. I know things are going to be challenging. I'm going to face things that are going to be uncomfortable and difficult and full of friction. Uh, and I try to reconnect to the sense of um, depth of gratitude of why I'm doing it. Right? Like I, I get to be one of the humans who's standing on the line right now. And I get to reconnect to sort of the the long line of other people that have been able to do that and serve on that on that space. Um, so when I was training in, in in Boston at Mass General, there's this long hallway uh, that's like, you know, it, it looks like it's older than dirt. And um, Mass General would of course want you to believe it's older than dirt, but it's not quite older than dirt. But it's got all these red bricks on it. And and sort of so I developed this pattern of like walking the long way so I could go down that hallway and think to myself about this idea that I'm about to cross this threshold. And when I enter this space, I'm gonna try to bring the best that I can to bear for anybody who's over there.
0: That's really fascinating. I'm really curious actually, thinking about the evolution of this for you over years. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm just wondering how that's progressed, both like as you progress as an individual and then both you as a doctor as well, what's that looked like? What's that evolution been like?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the first couple of times that I performed under pressure, and I think this is pretty universal talking to other humans that perform under pressure. The first couple of times, you just, you don't, you don't live up to your expectations to put it really mildly, right? Like you really end up Falling far short of where you want to be, doing right, and and that's part of our logic of how we train people is that we never we try never to put people all the way at the front, right at the beginning, right. We try to gradually introduce them to pressure, a concept that we sort of term the wedge, right. You start with low wedge practice, which is a little bit of pressure, and then you move yourself up to high wedge practice, and then finally, sort of like the full the full weight of the team on your shoulders. But you know, the first couple times that I performed under pressure, I, I remember just thinking so hard about this gap between where I was and where I wanted to be. And man, I, you know, I, even though, like, I'd already finished medical school, I had a PhD at that point. Like, I was a fairly, you know, well put together human with a lot of knowledge. And even still, you realize that deploying that knowledge, like taking that that abstract fact and concept and mapping it and bringing it down to the point of the spear where the person needs it, is such a different set of skills than actually knowing the thing to begin with. And so, the first couple of times you do that, you, you look at this gap and you say, "Well, man, how in the world do I start crossing that?" And so, actually. That technique of like looking at the red bricks when I'm walking into work was an experiment. And it was one of many things that I tried. And that's the one that seemed to stick for me. But part of the answer is how of how it evolved is that you you practice, you experiment, you think to yourself, okay, I'm gonna today I'm gonna try this and let's see how it goes. Some days it is a total, total like dumpster fire of a failure, right? And you come back out and you're like, all right, okay, okay, fine. Like, let's try that again. What am I gonna do differently tomorrow? And then you consciously sort of like upgrade yourself every day through that.
0: I love that concept and the verbiage around the wedge. It's just like a great mental imagery for, to think about like your own progression and how you got to get to those lower wedge type activities first, and then you can build on top of that. I am wondering though, I mean, as a, as a high performer, I have to imagine there's still that tension state, right? Like where you are to where you want to get to that gap, that void in between, we're always trying to close that gap. So at this point in your career, like how wide is that gap? I'm just wondering how you, how you process this mentally each time you enter the ER?
1: Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question. And I think there's a couple of answers to that. So one is that um, I don't believe that there's a finished product. I don't believe that there's a version of Dan that will perfectly cross that gap all times in all situations and that I just have to get there and then I'm done. I'm done growing and done evolving. I don't think that's true. It, quite the contrary. I think that we all always evolve and and always have room to improve and grow. And that, and that, you know, mastery and development to me is that growth and that sort of constant evolution of it. So some days the gap feels really big. Uh, some days the gap feels quite a lot smaller. Now, I, I hope and I very much believe that if you look at this, the size of that gap on an absolute scale from an impartial third person view, that it's gotten a lot smaller over the years. I've gotten better at performing under pressure. Um, but what it feels like on a moment to moment basis is a lot more nuanced. And my friends that that I, I'm not much of a musical person, but my friends that play instruments talk about sort of a similar thing, right? Like they've gotten better at playing the instrument. But when they play, they think to themselves about ah, the nuance of where they want to be a little different in this one note. And like, that's what they think about and, and they celebrate where they've come from and how far they've gone, but they keep pushing for that little that little piece of it. So I still use the wedge myself, like on a pretty regular basis, right? Like I think about, okay, well, this new idea I'm trying, can I try it out slightly lower pressure somewhere else and then deploy it slightly higher pressure. Like that's still a concept, a simple machine that we use all the time.
0: Yeah. I love the concept around those micro moments where we're super hard Mm -hmm. on ourselves kind of thinking like, oh man, I could have improved so much even on that podcast interview. Right. But then over time I've progressed exponentially almost. And and so I'm actually wondering about those two different scenarios where those gaps are larger or one's smaller, one's larger, right? Like in the moment you perform and you execute almost flawlessly, I'm wondering what your your post-review looks like of a moment where you perform exceptionally and then one where the gap was massive and you're just completely dissatisfied with your performance there?
1: Yeah. So um, there's a bunch of tools that we have that work in those spaces. Um, the underlying thesis, the underlying reality behind that is this uh, this deep desire and this deep belief to never waste suffering. To never waste my suffering, my patient suffering, to never waste the suffering of our team, and to use that suffering as fuel. Um, and so, we sort of we sort of have this saying, uh, you know, along the lines of like, if you want to get better, if you want to keep growing, you can't waste suffering because it's too precious of a fuel. Mm-hmm. There's too much energy in it uh, that you need to keep driving forward. So with that underlying reality mindset, then we get the question of like, okay, well, how do we actually post process something? And I, I think one of I think when I started, I tended to make really broad brush strokes and sort of these blunt moves like, I'm great, or I suck, or this was terrible. And like n- none of that's probably true in any like real sense, right? And the more experience you get, the more nuanced you get with it, and you're able to sort of pick apart different pieces of it. So you can. Well, actually, so the the main tool that we use is something that I learned from uh, Annie Duke, who's a former world champion poker player turned decision-making expert. Uh, And in her book, Thinking About Bets was the first time I really encountered this in like a really real way. Although I sort of had been doing some of it unconsciously before that. But it's the idea of what she calls resulting Mm Right, so um, you imagine a two by two table, and one side is is outcome, which is what happened, like what the actual result is, and then the other side is performance, which is how did you perform at your job, and it sort of gets into the Stoic dichotomy of control, right? Like performance is what I have the ability to control, and outcome is what actually happened, and what you're going to do after an event is map map that event onto that table, and you'll probably find that there are some pieces of what happened in each of those four quadrants, and Then you can really start digging into that and start exploring outward being like, okay, well, what did we do? Well, what do we not do? Well, what could we do better? And why did this happen? Do we think there's a link here? Or was it randomness? And you can sort of start down that path of dissecting, dissecting what happened.
0: Yeah. Um, I love that concept. Annie's fantastic. She's been on the show a couple of times and Amazing. Her, her her ability to think about decision-making, uh, is just second to none. Most likely you, you were mentioning there for a second, just about things that you spent too much time focusing or putting too much effort in earlier on in your career. Anything else like that, that with hindsight, you're like, you know what? I actually would have doubled down on this much sooner at the start of my career.
1: Oh yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, like the, the way that I understand human performance under pressure, the way that I understand that piece of emergency medicine, has has just evolved so much as to, in some sense, be like almost unrecognizable from like what I started at. But I think the biggest thing that I think differently now, and then we'll sort of back end that in your question of what I would have done earlier had I understood that, right, is that is this idea that the way we work is this constant cycle of prepare, perform, recover, evolve, prepare, perform, recover, evolve. And when I trained, I just thought about perform. Maybe some days I'd think about recover. And if I had a, a, um, we tend to do in emergency medicine training, uh, like a half day a week of what you just call school. So you're just training for that half day and whether that's sim or or lecture or whatever. And like, maybe I'd think about evolve when it was a school day, but I basically thought about nothing else. You just perform, perform, perform. And I think that's so incredibly short-sighted and just so uh, so mistaken of, of an opinion about how to do this kind of work. And then I think instead, the more I understand um, the depth of the logic behind this cycle of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, the better I get. So I would have way, way, way double down on preparation. I would have learned everything I could about recovery from stress. I would have learned everything I could about the way that you Learn from what happened and take it into your next day. Um, I would have studied, you know, uh, like Peak by Anders Ericsson. I would have studied more of Josh Waitzkin's books about learning. I would have really dug into like what we think is the best about how humans actually, um, for lack of a better word, like suck knowledge from something and turn it into more product.
0: I love these four quadrants here. And believe me, we're gonna dive into each one of these throughout this entire conversation. I think there's a a lot of things you've done throughout your life that are gonna pull and toggle into all these. But one of the ones that really just like kind of stood out to me there for a second was around taking what we learn in that day and then using and learning from that to set us up for the next day. I'm thinking about that, like that line you had a few minutes ago around never wasting suffering. I'm thinking about using that because I have to imagine just the magnitude of some of the moments you deal with like, how do you take that that suffering in that moment and be able to step back and analyze it and then use that moving forward? I'm just wondering how you process that.
1: Yeah. Um, that's hard. Uh, I've gotten a lot better at that over the years, uh, in part from building up a depth of sense of self, uh, in part from building up a sense of mission and in part from therapy, and starting to understand how to process some of these things that happen. Um, I think there was this mindset. I had this mindset when I started that uh, nothing should affect me. I should just bundle through it, put my shoulder down and get on to the next thing. Um, and there certainly are times and emergencies where you do not have the space and time to actually dig deep into the human side of what happened. The next person needs you and you have to keep moving. But over time, I've I've invested more and more in understanding the impact of these things that you see on yourself, right? I mean, not, not too long ago, I had a um, really challenging case where we we lost a young patient, and uh, you you know, you can't um, you can't go from losing a young child directly into a ultra-technical analysis of the way your left hand moved during part of one procedure. Or you can, but you can't really do it well in any meaningful way. right? You have to take the time and space to sort of honor what happened and dig into it. You know, this is something that the the folks I work with at the Mission Critical Team Institute talk about as, as residue. These cases, these events leave residue with you and on you. And if you ignore it, it builds up over time and it, it causes badness. Um, so now I I try to in the moment consciously take some time to uh, reflect on and and honor what happened and you know we try to create some rituals around that things that happen sort of at the end of at the end of somebody's life um, and then afterwards take some time to post process that and and really to to feel it and uh, and I I'm a lot more conscious about feeling things than I think I was when I started um, and then you can start digging into it yeah. Oh, necessity. <laughs>
0: well, that's this is like why I'm like really curious. I almost feel like earlier on, like we just endure more. It's like throw more on my shoulders, yeah. right? Like I can handle more. And then I don't know if it's just age or what it is. All of a sudden you've reached that threshold. You're like, this is not sustainable. Uh, yeah, you know, totally. I just wondering I mean, how that played out for you.
1: My, my emo answer to that is like, you know, <laughs> the integral of overwhelming amount of pain, but that's probably like not a useful sentence, right? I, I think that really it's getting conscious of the fact that like, this does affect you. And having, having in some sense permission, right? Like seeing people that I really respected and that were ahead of me and that were people that I looked up to as incredible doctors and, you know, absolutely, absolute like paragons of performance under pressure, watching them be like, Hey, I, I felt this, this, this is real. Like I really felt what happened right here. And then sort of being like, Oh man, okay. I guess if they feel it, like it's probably okay for me to, to feel it too. And and I think that's one of the reasons that I, I'm um, uh, so vocal at the fact that like, I do therapy, like I do it every week. I think about what I'm feeling. I try to get better at it because like, hopefully somebody listening to this can be like, oh, that, I don't know, that weird dude, Dan, who does all this crazy performance under pressure stuff. Like he does therapy. So, okay. It's probably okay if I feel things too. Um, And, and I think we're slowly bending the culture around that.
0: Yeah. I think that's so important. I love when people that we look up to open up the gateway for us. Almost just like that acceptance That's oh, okay. Mm. Someone who I look up to, I respect, they do that. Oh, okay, maybe I can garner something from Absolutely. that as well. I think that's just so crucial. So I love hearing things like that from people like yourself opening up that up. How did you initially, though, just even get interested in, in becoming a doctor, entering the ER, right? Like that's a unique thing, I feel like, that not many people yeah. steer, steer towards.
1: Yeah, it's a, we're, we're a weird bunch. Uh, I think, um, you know, you go through medical school and well, okay. A slight step back. Like I I trained mostly as like a scientist and a little bit um, of a uh, with like a slice of engineering in there. And I I thought I was going to medical school to build medical devices. Hmm. And I really just wanted to know which devices to build. That's actually like sort of how I framed it when I first got in there, which is kind of ridiculous looking back at it, but everything makes sense looking backward, right? (laughs) Nothing makes sense as you're going forward. And, uh, and so I got into it and realize like, wow, okay, that like devices are cool, but like all these people are suffering from all this stuff. Like I really need to go figure out what's going on in that. And like, how can we help the people that with what they're suffering? Uh, and, you know, you get exposed to all this stuff as part of your medical education. You, you know, you spend time in the pediatrics ward and in an operating room and and, and, in physical therapy, you spend time everywhere. Right. And pretty much universally something hits you and it just, you're like, this is what I want to do. This is the shape I am. This is the, this is the puzzle piece that I need to be in. And for me, I, you know, I remember wandering through the ER at three or four in the morning when I was on some other rotation, just because I just, I just felt alive there right? And like, this is the group of people that, that steps up and tries to take care of anybody that walks in. And it doesn't matter what they're there for. Do they just need a sandwich and a pair of socks? Are they dying of a gunshot wound? Like, it doesn't matter. You're going to step up and try to make their life better. And I think that is deeply, deeply, deeply meaningful. And that meaning, that purpose, uh, that, that alignment with that really gets me through a lot of the hardship of what, what happens. And I'm a very purpose-driven person like that. And, and that really synced up well with what I wanted to be doing.
0: I feel like we're jumping into Joseph Campbell's follow your bliss right here. And I'm wondering yeah, how- Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah no, I, like, this is just like lights are going off for me. I love this right now. And I have to imagine there's a lot of people because there were times where I wasn't as clear about my purpose, what I was going after. How do you cultivate the conditions both to be part of the environment, but then also to be able to see right? Like a lot of times a purpose could hit someone in the face and they're not even aware. They're not even able to see it. I'm wondering for you, how you were able to see it, but then also able to act on it.
1: Yeah, that's really good. I, I, uh, I think that's a real, like deeply important question. I, I don't know that I have an answer answer to it. I can certainly like, maybe elevate a couple building blocks that might, that might help with that. That's all right? we're doing One of here. which is like, <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, w- one of which is like an underlying belief that um, that you can change yourself, that I can change myself. Right. I, I believe that I can change myself. I believe that I can open up the hood and tinker on my engine and improve it and upgrade parts, swap out components. I believe I can do that with conscious effort and continued work Uh, And that I can take things around me that are better than how I work and bring them in and absorb them and make that me. And when I believe that, that opens me up to the question of what everybody else around me is seeing and thinking that I might not understand right? Like I'm sitting here talking to you and I'm like, man, what what does Sean know that I don't? Like, what are you doing that is interesting and deep and, and has like substance to it that maybe I could absorb? And you get so curious about these other mindsets from it. And you know when so when I was in medical school and I was facing this question about what specialty to go into, uh, I was uh, part of an MD PhD program. So we do you do train in medicine and you train in science, and these are very 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 different mindsets, and each of them brings various strengths and weaknesses to the table. And to be a hybrid product means uh, to be to be an MD PhD to be a hybrid product means that you're able to see the strengths and weaknesses of both pieces and absorb them into you. It's sort of like skill stacking, right? And maybe like, which is maybe the more like entrepreneur way to say it, like, right, we skill stack and you bring the different mindsets together. And so when you're open to that, when you're open to different mindsets, when you believe that the people around you and the different, the different skill sets have things that you can absorb that maybe you don't understand, I think you're open to, to getting slapped in the face by sort of purpose.
0: Oh, that's great. Like my lights are going out on once, once again here. So my mom who doesn't live uh, in the same state as me, she's in town right now. So we are having dinner. This is literally the exact conversation we were having last night, right? Like awesome. opening up the hood and that you're able to, to rewire, learn, adapt, become a better version of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering like how you developed that mindset, because this is like, I hate saying this, but the majority of people, they don't have that mindset that they're so in that they have the belief that they can bring a better version of themselves out right like they think they're a finished product at all time so I'm wondering as you one of those people that I view as more of an outlier, what is the reason that you were able to have that mindset and then we can get even further into how yes of course we can train this but I'm just wondering how that got built early on for you
1: I think I'm, I think I'm very lucky I think I got exposed to that belief very early from a lot of different angles of life right like my, my parents uh, are, really really dedicated learners and i grew up with them always talking about sort of what they were reading and what they were curious in and how they could get better at x y and z and you know i remember like the thing we were sort of proud of in our house growing up most proud of was like the bookcase hmm. and like everything that it had on it and and they would talk about not just about like oh we used to study this thing when we were in college but they would look at a book and be like this helped me change this thing in my life. And here's why. And so I sort of got into that, the groove of like, oh, okay, things can change even for, you know, you're a kid. And you think your parents are like a million years old sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening to this, but like, you know, like I'm like, Oh wow. Even these old people can change. Right. And like, like, well, okay, cool. If they can, then I probably can too. And you know, I also grew up doing martial arts and, and I remember my, um, my martial arts instructor uh, who was a huge force in my early life uh, he would come back and be like, "Hey, I just went to this seminar and learned this new thing that I'd never seen before. Let's play with it." Mm-hmm. And like even still, like even this person who was so far advanced was still learning and still growing and still changing. So I got exposed to that pretty early, and then you know, um, that really continued on through a lot of schooling. Uh, I think it's also pretty natural when you when you come from a martial arts background. you realize like there are no finished products. there are always ways to learn and get better. Uh, and then if you stop learning, you get punched in the face really hard. It's, it's pretty, pretty notable.
0: <laughs> a, a lot I want to dive into from that. One of the things I found just deeply fascinating right there is you were talking about the number of books you've had, but then your parents basically describing certain lessons they pulled out of those books. But why I think that is so key. So many people talk about. It. I've read this book; it was awesome, really helpful for me. But then, like when, when you get those mentors in your life that share like their personal notes and their highlights and their underlines, they were like, "This was the specific thing in my mm-hmm. personal life that this changed about me." You you develop such a better depth of learning with that. I just thought that was really really cool to hear about. I'm wondering for you, right? Like here, we have someone who might just be like, "Wow, Dan's got this, these really interesting thoughts." Were there any books specifically for you that had lasting impacts that kind of changed your worldviews?
1: Yeah, man, absolutely. And I still, I still do this, right? Like my my close friends and I read books together and share our thoughts about it and do these mini like development book clubs, which we we tend to call wisdom and whiskey because there's usually there's usually whiskey involved in it. Uh, but it's a uh, it's a great opportunity to sort of like bounce ideas off each other and to sort of explore. Uh, and push each other about sort of what you feel when you read something, not just like, Hey, this is cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, so to me, one of the, one of the most interesting directions of all of this, that's really changed the way that I get, that I think that I get better that I perform, um, is sort of the twin, um, the twin directions of like Kahneman and Klein, right? So Kahneman, uh, focuses on, um, cognitive biases and human performance, how the brain works, uh, and really tries to get at the idea of like, how do we think and act when we are not, uh, an expert at something, when we're doing something that, that we don't really have a lot of knowledge about in a universe that is pretty unpredictable. Klein, on the other hand, um, and, and, uh, Kahneman would be you know, uh, thinking fast and slow, right? And Klein would be sources of power is probably the first one I'd read. Uh, and Klein takes the opposite approach where he talks about sort of how do humans make decisions and think in areas where it is possible to generate expertise and they are experts. Things like chess masters making moves on a chessboard, uh, firefighter captains deploying resources within a structure fire, um, stuff like that. And and. These are wildly different worldviews about how the human mind functions. Um, And both of those books have been incredibly deeply uh, meaningful and um, important in sort of my understanding and development about how I function as a human being. Uh, And you got to read them both. And then you got to read this paper they wrote together called A Failure to Disagree, which is like probably one of the coolest things ever.
0: Yeah, I'm a huge fan of both Kahneman and Klein. We, we've been lucky enough to have Klein on the show. Uh, yeah, so he's, yeah. he's got some really interesting takes um, and just fascinating what his work done. One, one, of the, one of the like the models I love about what he does, he, he talks about one specific instance of just having like that direct knowledge. And when he was working with a few police officers, he was following along and they're talking about a specific story. They're, they're behind a car. It might be a brand new BMW or Mercedes, just really, really nice. And all of a sudden he sees the driver ash their cigarette. And all of a sudden, like you, you you just you don't read this in a book. He was just like, There's no way that someone in that brand new Mercedes would ash their cigarette. That's gotta be a stolen car. Long story short, pull a car over. Yep, that's the exact instance. And I'm wondering for you, do you have any things like that throughout your career that like you just have to be doing it for a few years or a number of years before you can deeply step back and be able to really toggle out situations like that that you can make a call on that earlier on in your career you couldn't?
1: Yeah. So I think this really gets into the depth about what kind of a environment are we performing in, right? So, you know, when you, when you think about that version of events uh, to build that expertise requires um, something resembling like a kind learning environment, right? So, you know, you, you can break learning environments down into, into a kind environment, which has repeatable rules and <clears throat> Excuse me. And a closed loop feedback between what you do and what the result is. Uh, unkind environments, which don't have that. They have no really repeatable rules. They're big, they're random, they're stochastic, there's not a lot of feedback or there's a delay in the feedback. And then antagonistic learning environments, which are like unkind environments where maybe something is trying to kill you or um Every now and then the whole thing just sets on fire or it's a trap and it's, it's trying to make you think one thing and actually it's, it's teaching you another. And there are days when the emergency department is kind, there are days when it's unkind and there are days when it's damn right antagonistic. And so I, I think to me, I, I'm sometimes able to pull out um, things like that ashing a cigarette story. Uh, when I get into areas which are more kind, but what I'm really, really careful about is not overcalling that hmm. and saying to myself, okay, do I really think I'm in a kind learning environment right now? Like do I think there's enough expertise that I can rely on that gut instinct or should I take a step back and really try to deploy more of my like analytic brain to to to, um, to buttress up my logic here?
0: You you mentioned stepping back there. This is one of the things I was really intrigued throughout your book that you hit on again and again. So I feel like I, I've been in the emergency room one time. I got to st- study a doctor. Which that was really cool. But uh, w- just how fast paced it is. But what you hit on hmm. again and again is essentially like developing these micro moments of space and time where you can deeply st- step back and reflect. And I would love for you to hit on this. I think this is such a key component of ability to think clearly and analyze situations correctly? Could, so, could you just like dive into this and we can expand yeah, on man. it?
1: Yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite things to think about and talk about too, actually, is the idea that, that you try to find these moments of calm in any storm, yeah. right? You try to find these these micro moments of, of pressure and release. And it's something that should be pretty familiar to anybody that studies jujitsu, right? Because it looks like somebody's constantly trying to crush you and kill you all the time when you play jujitsu. But really you can feel over time, these moments of pressure and release, like you're in danger, you're not in danger, you're in danger, you're not in danger. Same idea if you're playing chess, right? Like you're in danger from a thing, you're not in danger. There's pressure and release back and forth in there. And when you start functioning in an emergency situation, in an emergency department, everything feels like it's moving a million miles an hour, like what you described, right? You're sprinting, everything's sprint, 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 sprint. And the more you understand about the way the world works and the way the human body works and the way your mind works, the more you realize that's actually not true. It's also one of these cyclic situations where there's pressure and release and pressure and release. And so what we try to do is find these moments of space to think, find these little bubbles, these little pockets of space in the middle of the flow of anything where you can take a a mental step back, sometimes even a physical step back, to be honest, uh, and really regroup reevaluate and change your thinking. Um, And actually, as as a start to that, one of the best ways to think about starting that to start looking for them uh, is to mirror the mental and the physical, right? So there are times when uh, I'm running a trauma, let's say, okay, the person comes in, they've been shot. um, There's a lot of chaos at the beginning, you're organizing your team, you're assessing their most vital symptoms, sorry, the most vital systems first, their airway, their breathing, their circulation, okay, you realize, all right, I don't have to put a breathing tube in. I don't need to cut their chest open. We can get some IV access. Let's give them some blood. Uh, Here's what's happening. And then there's this moment where you need to get an x-ray. And when you get the x-ray, you physically take a step back out of the room so you don't get x-rayed also. And you sort of watch the development of people as they start running more and more of these traumas. And the first couple of times when they take a step back... They're just like, they're just still going. They're just still physically, their mind's in the room and it never left, even though their body stepped back. And then when you do it more and more, you realize, oh, this is a cue for me. I am physically taking a step back. Therefore, let me mentally take a step back when I do it. And you can see them take a deep breath and change their posture and relax slightly and start thinking differently. So sometimes sometimes we're handed that moment like that, right? Which is that, oh, I physically step back. So therefore I will mentally step back. Sometimes we have to be more proactive about searching for it. We have to ask ourselves, am I pushed to act in this moment? Does the universe need me to decide something right now or catastrophe will happen? And if not, can I hold that pocket, be be comfortable with that uncertainty and that pressure and regroup mentally a little bit?
0: How do you distinguish between trading off time, right? Like to actually step Mm -hmm. back to gain more certainty in a scenario. I'm just wondering how you think that through.
1: Yeah, th- there. This is so fascinating, and um, there are certain areas where I'm better at this skill than others. And this is a, a, one of the active fronts of learning for me: is this idea of of risk management and trading information for time, and how I wanna how I wanna ride that line. Um, so. Uh, one way you approach that is looking for underlying structures in the way that things fit together. So for instance, um, uh, you know, when we approach a new, a new patient who's very sick, we go in the order ABC airway, breathing, circulation, right? That's because if your airway doesn't work, then it's sort of irrelevant if your breathing works. Mm-hmm. And if your breathing doesn't work, then it's sort of irrelevant if your circulatory system works. It's Just the underlying reality of how the human human physiology is set up. So when you have these structures, you can use them to sort of understand how much risk you're carrying at that moment, right? Mm-hmm. So I can say, okay, well, I know it works this way and A and B are okay. So I can really focus my energy on C, and I can take a little more time with the other piece of it. Hmm. Um, it you know, there's also uh, the sense of once you've cleared A, B, and C, you usually have a second or two, and that comes from just experience and seeing the the ideas play out over and over again. You have averages; you understand most people um, don't go from a normal ABC primary survey into death immediately, so you probably have a moment to regroup.
0: That's awesome, so you're really understanding what are the main components that require the most amount of thought first and affect every other thing and then dive on those first and then everything else can kind of take care of itself progressing from that original, like let's call it root one phase. I I wanna dive back into a second into just the undulation uh, between like those those micro moments the the way i think about this is i remember i think it was uh, jim lorys lore's work around tennis players and they found out the best tennis players cuz within a tennis match there's all of these in between um in between the shots or in between the sets they've got this time they found out the best tennis players were actively engaging in the recovery process during those those few mm-hmm. seconds in between where the novice wasn't doing that as much you mentioned physically stepping back this might be during an x-ray what else do you do just to gain a little bit more focus or awareness, or just recover in those micro moments? I know this is kind of like a nuanced question. I'm just wondering, because I'm sure what you do- No, no, it's really really
1: important. Yeah, and so, um, so the cycle that we run, prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, has a fractal nature to it, right? There's the big cycle, which is that I prepare for a shift, I perform in a shift, I come home and recover, and then I evolve before my next shift. But there's the micro cycle of it, which is, okay, I have to do a procedure. I have to put a breathing tube in somebody. I'm going to prepare in the one second before that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to recover and zone my consciousness back out to a broader sense and see the whole patient again. And then I'm going to evolve what happened to do that skill better next time. And there's that multiple layers of that, multiple scales on which that works. So um, we talked about physically taking a step back. Uh, In a way, this gets back to like the very first question you asked, which is, what do I do when I'm walking into the ER? Right. So the, the micro moment equivalent of that is what do I do to gain space right before I I deliver a skill, right before I perform? Um, and I think that there's uh, uh, a lot of physiology that you can involve in there in yourself, right? So uh, Huberman um, in his amazing podcast talks about this idea of a physiologic sigh, right? Which is this specific breathing pattern, sort of like two inhales and then a long exhale, which triggers your parasympathetic nervous system and helps calm you down right before you perform. So I'll do that. Right before, I do a, right before I do a thing. Um, and uh, I will um, use things like that, whether it's taking a physiological sigh or I'll often check my own pulse right before the person comes into the room and really practice slowing my own heart rate down sort of right before things happen. Uh, and that's, again, things that I've done using a wedge, right? Like I've practiced them on low wedge scenarios and then brought them up and up in higher wedge times before I deploy them for a patient.
0: Do you mind me asking, what is the the reasoning behind thinking about the pulse and then actually slowing it down? What does that do for you yeah. in that moment?
1: To me, it does two or three things. So, so first off, uh, it reminds me that I am alive, mm-hmm. which, which sounds sort of kind of ridiculous because like, of course I am, but I'm alive and I have these heartbeats to figure out what I want to do with. I don't always know if I'm going to have heartbeats tomorrow, but I have heartbeats right now and I can choose what to do with them. And to me, that is one of the biggest pieces of purpose, the biggest sort of core factors of who I am, which is that I want to be conscious about how I live and what I what I do with my life. And so if I can remember that in that moment, right before this person comes in, I'm going to be fired up and I'm going to be doing better. Hmm. The other thing is it makes me think about all of the other times that I've checked my pulse before somebody came in and I've made it through all of those. So I'm going to make it through this one also. And it connects back to your personal history of training and skills, um, now, obviously that doesn't work the first time you do it, but you, you know, you gotta, you gotta like practice that a few times to get that kicking in.
0: All life though. Right. It, have yeah. you actually dove into any of the research around the somatic awareness around your actual heartbeat? Do you have any idea what I'm talking about?
1: I, I do. I, I have not, I'm not particularly well-versed in that. It's certainly something that I'd like to get better at. And that, that's another active front of learning for me is sort of the, um, the mental physiological mm-hmm. links around that sort of thing, whether it's the physiologic sigh or the traumatic perception of heart rate.
0: Yeah. Like broad strokes here for, for anyone listening, basically the people who could actually tell when their heart were beating, uh, made better Mm -hmm. investment decisions. They basically made better decision-making processes across everything they did in life. Just being deeply attuned to the heart rate. I don't know what, what you do with that, what you take with that, but I just found that extremely fascinating. One thing you, you hit on again and again, and for the like long-time listeners know, this is like huge for me is tying everything back to purpose. And I'm just wondering, like, could you go over how you think about purpose and then how that got clear and evolved for you?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think that when you are in emergencies enough and you face enough death, you pretty naturally start thinking about what the purpose of life is and what it means, right? Because these people that come in um, that are on the table in front of me, I always think about the fact that like- they probably had plans for this weekend. They had things they wanted to do, things they were excited about. They had a long-term vision of what they wanted for their family. And they don't get to realize that. And that is really hard, right? And it's easy to make that sort of an overwhelming sense of, of uh, loss and chaos and everything else. But one of the things that I've taken from that is this idea of, well, you know, you don't really know ever how long you have. You don't really know how long you have here. And if that's true, to, to, to use sort of a Buddhist quote about this, like, if death is certain, but time of death is uncertain, what then is important? And that is a real forcing function on developing a sense of purpose, right? You either go way nihilistic or you or you go quite the opposite. You develop a really strong sense of purpose and, and what it means. Um so for me, the answer to that question or the thing that I think is my deepest purpose is to master myself and serve the world and to be the best version of myself that I can be, to dig in, to to learn, to, to grow, to understand my place in the world and how the, how I work as a human, and then to leverage everything that I know to make the universe better for me having been here. Um. And that's, come, that's evolved over time and gotten polished by the friction of what I do. Hmm. Uh, and you know, I, I try to keep that purpose close to the day-to-day actions that I'm doing, right? To try to line up my choices with that deeper purpose um, and also to spend time making sure that I'm really uh, digging into that purpose over and over again. Is that still my answer? What do I feel about that now? How do I feel about that when I'm when I'm making these sort of like medium-sized choices about my life?
0: How do you actually dive into that? Is that just like a deep reflection, call it like a journaling session, or is it just in the moment thinking about it?
1: Yeah, uh, I, um, I, I do a lot of journaling. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of uh, reflection about sort of what I'm feeling. Um, and I try when I do that to be very conscious of um, – the difference between like real signal and fluff, right? It's easy to have a lot of fluff uh, coming out of the ER, right? Like you walk out covered in blood and somebody puked on you and it's a really terrible day. And, and it's very easy to be like, I hate this. I hate everything about this. And write down, I had a terrible day. Like, but is that real or is that fluff, right? Like, is, is the signal still there after you eat something drink some water and work out? Like that's that's maybe a real signal. Is it just situational? There, there's some great quote, which is like, you know, being a human is really funny. Like you're this amazing supercomputer, but you're also this weird bag of chemicals. And like, you know, you can, you can paint a Picasso, but also if you get hungry, you're going to yell at people like, like what, you know, you sort of have to like be aware of the reality of like, of low, how your wetware works and sort of like, like use that to seek out what's real signal about purpose.
0: I'm wondering how how you decipher that signal versus the noise. And I know something that you do is you understand the power of questions, right? Like you want better answers in Mm -hmm. life. You got to ask better questions. And I'm wondering how you're actively asking yourself questions, both during those deep reflection moments, but then also in the moment of a very chaotic uh, storm and how you drive better answers with better questions.
1: Yeah. uh, You know, one of the, uh, another sort of front of inquiry for me has been figuring out how to the best way to ask questions are the people around me in the room, right? So I'm leading a team, right? Emergency medicine uh, is a team sport. I might be the doctor in charge, but that, but I, I'm working with an incredible team and they all have different viewpoints and skill sets. And I um, have grown a lot in my ability to ask questions of the team around me, uh, mostly from studying how other people ask really effective questions and how they don't. And so one of the things that I've done differently is um, Try to incorporate more of my understanding of, of uh, behavioral economics into the way I run a trauma. Sort of a weird, sort of a weird connection of stuff, but I think it's incredibly important, right? So we know that people tend to have a confirmation bias, right? We're more likely to agree with other folks that are around us and less likely to, to raise um, uh, contradictory points of view. So if you're running a trauma and you're like, "Hey guys, I think that the dominant process here is..." Uh, tension pneumothorax, which is a uh, really scary sort of buildup of air in a lung um, that can basically stop the heart from beating. And the, the way to relieve it is by opening up the chest. So, so you're saying, hey guys, the, the dominant process here is tension pneumothorax. Uh, everybody agree? Like mm-hmm. that's a very different structural question from folks. I think the dominant process is tension pneumothorax. Before we do this procedure, I need dissenting views. Mm-hmm. Who disagrees oh, okay, that's a very different set of questions, right? And you can get even more nuanced in it, right? You can bring in like um, David Marquet and the, um, the his leadership work from like Turn the Ship Around, right, where he talks about fist to five. So he goes, okay, we're going to do procedure X, real quick hands. I want uh, five fingers up if you're full go. I want a fist if you're full stop, give me a number. Mm-hmm. And then he looks around the room and he picks one or two people who are like a one or two finger. He's like, why, what do you see that I don't? And to me, that's such an interesting evolution of asking better questions about people around you because it, it, it addresses the reality of how our, our brains work and our social, the social parts of our brain work. And it allows you to, um, I don't know, bypass or short circuit that to get to information that's actually much more usable.
0: Such subtle differences there, but dramatically different outcomes when, when you change. Absolutely, those. yeah. That, I mean, this is, we we could spend literally a ten-hour podcast on this alone. Um, so, so I hope people dive yeah. deeper onto this. I, I would love to return just you talking about your purpose and just mastering yourself, mm-hmm. becoming the best version of yourself. Uh, I know you love stoicism, ancient ancient words, sayings, and things like that. Are you Absolutely, with man. Yeah, the, uh, the Greek word arte.
1: Uh-huh. uh
0: yeah, yeah. So arte, yeah, essentially like virtue or excellence, but like the way they viewed it is essentially like. In each moment, you can bring out the best version of yourself. And so I'm mm-hmm. wondering, like, just, just tying into that, how, how are you stepping back and just thinking about what you look like? Because you said you're never a finished product. So, like, how far out are you extending a better version of Dan for where you're at now? I know it's kind of like an abstract thing. I'm just wondering how you oh, think Oh, that's
1: about- cool. I No, I like that question. How, um, hmm. Well, okay. It, this is maybe an oblique answer to that, but when I look at, I'd say it's tempting to. So, so I had a birthday recently. I turned, I turned uh, 39 like two weeks ago, and uh, you know, it's tempting to sit there and look at yourself and look back at what your um, 20-year-old or 29-year-old version of you would think about how you're doing, and use that as the the yardstick that you're comparing to. Sorry, the meter stick. Let's be let's be good about this. Uh, But that's probably not super useful. And I think a more interesting idea is what are the what are the scales with which I measure myself, and how have those evolved over time? Hmm. Because I'm not, you know, when you ask how how different and more evolved is Dan going to be, well, one of my answers to that is I hope the scales I'm using are going to change as I get a deeper and deeper understanding of, of myself and the universe around me. Um, so earlier versions of me uh, probably wouldn't have thought about uh, a daily gratitude practice as an important metric of how I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I think I was an ungrateful person, but I don't think I understood the power and the utility of consciously focusing on the good around you. Hmm. And now that's part of one of the things that I try to do. And part of my my question of how how well am I doing is that version of it. Hmm. Um, I think a little bit about sort of like uh, what Jim Collins describes as his like negative two to two sort of scale, right? He's like every day gets a number and it's between negative two and two about how you did that day. And then he goes back and looks both in terms of what his, what his overall arc is, how am I doing, but also like what is it that made you feel like today was a two? What is that? What are you doing right there? What does that tell you about your actual value system and what you can change
0: for it? Another one of these, these little things, right? We can even call these, these little wedges that done over time, yeah, the answers that they can bring out for you, the clarity you can get, right? Like the work's got to be done. And what I love is like, you're actively engaging in the work and that's why you're able to have really deep, meaningful questions or answers to these questions.
1: So I, I think, and that's a, that's a really interesting segue. So, you know, we talked about the wedge, right? Which is this incredible simple machine that allows you to practice things at low pressure before you deploy them at high pressure. And that, that's like the skills you're going to use in an emergency are the same skills you can bring out when you spill coffee on yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, like That's when you really practice them. The other simple machine we use all the time is the wheel. And whether that wheel is prepare, perform, recover, evolve, or whether you're going to take the sort of lean startup idea of build, measure, learn, or whatever it is, right? Like spinning that wheel and experimenting is one of the other deepest virtues that I've found throughout my time of learning to perform under pressure right? You have to experiment. You have to work on yourself. You have to be willing to try new things, willing to have them fail, and then willing to sort of step back up and do it again. And the more you can run that experiment, the deeper and deeper you can go into this sense of like your purpose, like how are you matching that purpose? How are your day-to-day movements doing? All of that stuff. And I love that so much because when you mash these things together, right? When you mash a wedge and a wheel together, you get a drill bit, And that's what, to me, that's like what lets you really move forward into, into what you're doing.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Um, Yeah. I'm wondering, you mentioned about some of the metrics that you're actually like looking at day to day to Mm -hmm. wonder how you're doing. You mentioned gratitude. Any other things you do like that? Just kind of check in.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. So this is my, this is my new, this is my current experiment uh, that I'm doing um, over the last couple of, this was like my, my idea last, you know, when I hit, when I hit 39 recently, I'm like, okay, what am I going to try differently this time? So I bought a deck of blank playing cards. Uh, and I wrote on them a bunch of things that I want to um, I want to be doing to know that I lived a good life that day. And uh, again, one of the great things about, about emergencies is that you're constantly faced with death, right? You're constantly faced with this idea that today might be the last thing that you do. And so uh, back in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, the very beginning, a bunch of us ER doctors were sort of like, okay, well, we might actually just drop dead of this at any day. Like, we don't understand it. We don't know what's happening. People are dying all around us. Like maybe today's my day. And so I had to really, really like operationalize this idea and be like, all right, well, if I literally don't know what I'm going to die, then how do I know if I lived a good life this day? Okay. Well, what are the things I want to do? And I sat there and thought about that and evolved it over and over again. And at that point I had sort of four answers and it was um, work on myself mentally train physically, uh, serve the world, and build something that would outlast me. And those are my four things. There's a fifth thing, which was I have high cholesterol, so I took a medicine. And I have to take that pill every day. You know, But that's like the boring one. Um, but uh, do those four things every day. And if I did those four things, then I could go to sleep knowing that if I didn't wake up the next morning, I gave it my best shot. Um, and thankfully, now I don't go into work thinking I'm going to drop dead every, every day, Although, you know, you never know, right? Knock on wood here. Uh, but I, I carried that idea forward of the idea of like, well, what do I want to spend my life doing? How do I know if I lived a good day? So I I bought this deck of blank playing cards and I wrote down on it five or 10 things I want to be doing. And just, you know, I, like every day I shuffle them and I flip over a card when I do it. And then I look at it at the end of the day and I'm like, how did that go? Did I, what do I want to do differently tomorrow? If I can, if, I, if I'm lucky enough to get tomorrow, right? And so some of them are things like gratitude practice or breath work and meditation, um, you know, uh, study and mental training um, to contribute to the universe, to adventure, to explore, things like this. And they're these sort of broad concepts in part because there's multiple ways to, to, to feel like I've actually succeeded at doing it. Um, but that's my current version of the experiment. I, I don't know. It's still pretty early. Some parts of it are really fun. I like the tactile sense of flipping over a card. That's pretty cool. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's going to get me to the right place. And I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens with it.
0: I actually, I have done something similar in terms of like mapping out what are those, those big buckets mm-hmm. that need to get checked off every single day. I love the tactile version though of the cards. And I like, I always just love like one of the best things about having a podcast. I know, you know, this is just like pulling from other resources. It's like, oh, let me try that. Let me run that experiment as well. I, I, I hope this doesn't seem like a nuanced question, but I know a lot of people are thinking, wow, like emergency room doctor. Like involved in other things as well, right? Like wrote a book. How do you find the time? And then, what does the time allocation look like to working on yourself throughout the day?
1: It's a it's a moving target <laughs> um, for sure. It's a moving target for sure. Uh, and I think that um, so so one thing uh, that becomes pretty obvious in the emergency department o- over time too is that you can't win everything every time. You have to focus on winning on net. You have to ask yourself this question of, is the emergency department better today for me having been here? Because you cannot succeed at every little thing that you try. And when you take that longer term sort of integrated view, um, then I think it becomes a little easier to do this kind of work. So I don't have to flip every card every day to feel like I've lived a good life. Hmm. But I want over time this to be what I spend my time doing. Hmm. And so you have to bring that broader idea into the micro decisions you make every day about how to do it. You have to line these things up. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Functionally, the way that I do that uh, every week tends to change depending on what my workflow is, right? Like, so if I'm, if I'm, Working overnights, if I'm nocturnal for a few days, the way I do this might be different, and the level of physical training that I perform is probably going to be a little bit less than if I'm on a if I'm on a day schedule and I can get to, um, you know, run on the beach the way that I want to.
0: Hmm. Your physical training, I forget the specific uh, verbiage you use around this, but I thought this was so insightful, right? Like in your actual job, in the ER, you're like, your heart rate's going to be elevated. Stuff's going to be chaotic. Mm-hmm. Your your physical training, I, I love what you do here is, I mean, you. Were, I think you mentioned you were doing a run and so you spike the heart rate and then you try to actively, I, I forget if it was visualization or what you mm-hmm. were doing while the heart rate was elevated. So this is in a controlled environment while you might be running a hill, running on the beach, but then you can take that and apply it to how that would play out in the ER when you have real stakes. I, I probably butchered that a bit, but I, I would love if you just kind of- No, no, that's
1: spot on. That's yeah, spot on. You, I think, Tim, uh, this is again, an example of, of using the wedge, Yeah. right? I, I tried to ask myself, okay, well, how, what other low, uh, what other low, uh, it's not really low stress, it's actually medium stress, but whatever, what other low impact scenarios can I get myself into where I can train, yeah. right? Cause if I had it, if I had access to a sim center, And I could use that sim center all the time and like really train on what I'm doing, but it doesn't really exist all the time, right? So instead like, how can you consciously experiment around your relationship with pressure over time? Because that's what you need to do to get better at it. You have to train and you have to consciously apply it over and over again. Um, So one of the things I do is I have this great hill outside my house. And at the end of my runs, often I run up the hill. And when my heart rate is really spiked, I mentally rehearse a particular thing. Maybe that's putting in a chest tube, or uh, I'm saying out loud what the first couple of sentences are going to be when I run into a room and take over. If I'm if I'm responding to a code somewhere else, um, or sometimes it's even the the smaller skills like what we talked about about asking for dissenting information. Okay, so how I ask for How do I remember to ask for information the right way when I'm really jazzed up? When I'm really ramped up in the middle of the scenario? Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll sort of look like a crazy person standing at the top of my hill, like, you know, moving my arms around, like fake putting in a chest tube or, or speaking to myself about <laughs> asking for dissenting information from people that aren't there. Um, but it's worth it. I think it's a lot of fun.
0: No, no, this is so awesome. So someone who's really helped my decision making uh, is, is the gentleman, Nick Acone. So, We've been lucky enough to have him on. So Nick, uh, he was a derivatives trader in Chicago in the Merchant Child Exchange, and then developed into became a restaurateur, uh, developed a linea, which is one of the best restaurants in the entire world. It got ranked number one. And so he talks about early in his career uh, when, when he was on the exchange. So after hours, they literally would be sitting there and they'd be screaming out math equations to each other and they would get into mm-hmm. full on fist fights. So their heart rates were going nuts, trying to make high uh, or make decisions with a lot of stress in line because if they could do that in the controlled environment after hours. They could do that much right. better in real time. So I, I just love hearing about that. One thing you mentioned I'm really curious about because we, we have a lot people who lead group groups, uh, who listen to the show, you mentioned when you come into a room and you you might be coming from a different room and all of a sudden you've got to take control of the situation. What does that look like when you enter a room with maybe not as much information, but then also getting everyone on the same page? How do you play that out in real time?
1: Yeah, that's a phenomenally interesting set of things to work on. And, and what works in an emergency doesn't necessarily work outside of an emergency in that case. Hmm. right? So if we're meeting each other for the first time, uh, well, let's take it the other way first. So if we're running into an emergency and I am the emergency doctor, I'm going to come in and take charge of the room, right? One of the first things we do when we want to run in is say some version of, I'm Dan, I'm the ER doctor who's in command. Hmm. And then if there's another ER doctor, if there's a critical care doctor, a trauma surgeon, somebody else that has the room and feels comfortable with it, they will say, "You know, whatever, I'm Sarah, I'm the trauma surgeon, I have this great. How can I help? Right. And if you look at the, um, I think it's in the, the book, the, uh, the Culture Code by Dan Coyle. He talks about uh, the plane. I'm going to butcher some of the story about this, but the, the United flight that was crashing and the flight simulator, the flight trainer that happened to be a passenger who ran into the cockpit and did exactly what I'm saying, said some version of, guys, I'm a flight trainer. What do you need? How do I serve? Like that sort of version of of creating that 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 idea. But if nobody says yes, if nobody says they're in charge, and that's usually what happens, there's usually this moment where everybody sort of like looks around at each other, like, I don't know, am I in charge? Are you in charge? Like, what's happening? Right. Then your next sentence is, great, I have command. This is what I want. Mm -hmm. And then you run your first step algorithms. And those first step algorithms are are what you've practiced in low-wedge scenarios about how to do those first two to three moves, how to do the airway breathing circulation, how to set up the things that will enable you to get success in a couple of moments, how to understand the situation and rapidly deploy your resources. Um, Now, that works really well in emergencies. That does not work really well in a lot of other situations, right? I mean, can you imagine me walking into a business meeting and being like, who's in charge here? I'm Dan. I have command. I want you to sit there. Right? Like that's, compl- that's ridiculous. This is just not how most human interactions work. So I think it's important to sort of differentiate between like we are in a high-pressure emergency scenario and we are not at all in a high-pressure emergency scenario. And the way we communicate with each other, the way we build culture, the way we deploy resources and, and engage each other in a back and forth are really different in these two scenarios. When we're not conscious of that, we can cause a lot of friction.
0: No, no, that's really helpful distinguishing those two. Thanks for bringing that up. I am curious. You you mentioned the algorithms there. How do you think about having the algorithms, but also allowing for the creativity in the, in the different circumstances that you run into?
1: Oh, dude, such a, such a good question, right? Like how do you, how do you build things that are scaffolds, but not cages? Yeah. Right. Like such an interesting way to, to look at it. And, um, I recently was talking to uh, this person, uh, Dr. Kevin Lonnie on my podcast, who was the former head of the Navy Trauma Training Center. And he he was talking about, which is a group that we work with here in LA, and he was talking about how um, there are some things that always need to be algorithmic and they need to be just packages you can deploy at a moment's notice, Mm -hmm. right? So this might be in... um, uh, you know, in, in jujitsu, the idea that you want to uh, create space on defense and destroy space on offense, uh, or you don't want to be caught with your arms and legs extended beyond a certain area. Like these are general all purpose rules that are easily deployable ideas. Um, not everything needs to be shaped like that. And and the, the risk, as you, as you said, is that you run the risk of sort of like destroying creativity. So often we, we, sort of use in the ER, the idea of algorithms first, then creativity, Hmm. right? So, okay, you're going to deploy the base algorithms to get you to the point where you can think creatively. Because especially when you run into that room and your heart rate's up and things are going crazy, that's not really the best moment to have a creative thought, right? Really, that's the moment to deploy the first step algorithm to then allow you to have the space to do it. Uh, One of the people I had on my podcast earlier, um, Ryan Anderson, who's a former... Uh, Navy bomb squad expert he talks about it as using seconds to buy minutes. Hmm. What algorithms can you could deploy in those first seconds that give you the space to then think creatively and, and, and create those other, those other options.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. The, the way I think about it is structure creates freight, freedom for me and structure creates mm-hmm. that creativity. So I'm, I'm able, because of those algorithms it then sets better conditions to be able to allow that free throw free flowing conversational type jazz to, to really take place there. You, you did mench- mention jujitsu. I knew mar- I know martial arts has been instrumental for you in, in developing and just you're never a finished version of yourself. Are there any other foundational things that you've pulled out of your decades being involved in martial arts that you just think is so applicable to anyone or anything they do in life?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, uh, what's the right way to put this? Um, reality, uh, wins, or I guess praxis wins is the right way to say that, right? So if you have the most elegant, beautiful, put together creative technique, uh, but you can't do it when it matters, you're just going to get punched in the face. And that's a good reminder about that. Um, it's a very visceral <laughs> reminder reminder of that, uh but it's true in most of life also right like if you create these like giant amazing theoretical structures, not that there's not value in that right like like the human species needs people to think theoretically and to create you know these amazingly new brilliant ideas, but I want to be one of the people on the on the side of it that that favors praxis that favors the the what can we bring into the reality of it hmm. um
0: Byron Katie's got this great line. She goes, every time I fight reality, I lose, but only 100% of the time. It's like so true, so many people are trying to fight reality. I, I just love that line. I, I love how you de- describe it through practice there. I was yeah. mentioning the, the word that I love, I really deeply resonate with, is the ancient Greek word arete. And I literally think about mm-hmm. that in, in each moment. How do I bring the best version of myself? It's, it's a reason I have yeah. it engraved here on my bracelet. You've you've gone a step for farther there with uh, with one of your terms, uh, amor fati, and I'm just wondering if you can talk about that because I know it's tattooed on you and, and what that means <laughs> yeah. to you and how you think about yeah.
1: that. Yeah, totally. So so I actually have I have uh, two Stoic philosophy concepts tattooed on me. One one is amor fati. The other is the idea of of sang Um sang-froid being the um, It's actually a French word for for cold-blooded, but what it really means is is the ability to stay calm under pressure and to bring that skill set together under pressure. Uh, Amor fati, the Latin concept of of, uh, love fate, but really love the hand of cards you're dealt and try to play it with joy. And to me, those two things represent some of the... um, uh, some of the deep truths about what I understand about my place in the universe, right? I have to bring the best I have to bear to the moment and I have to play the hand of cards. I'm dealt with joy. Uh, and I have one tattooed on each arm and they're, uh, easily available for me to look at in the middle of doing something. And often I'll accidentally catch sight of one of them when I'm putting a tube in or doing some sort of a procedure. And and it reminds me, right. This is what I'm here for. This is, this is what I think is the most important answer. Um, you know we talk about evolution and about uh about sort of changing your vision of the world and that that's progress and not and not setback i i hope as i continue to grow and continue to you know get older and better at what i do i hope i don't i hope i don't need to change those tattoos that would be a little bit troublesome <laughs> but i'll i'll figure something out if i need to cross that bridge
0: oh, no. No, no, I I love that. I think it's so helpful, these subtle reminders. Like I mentioned, I have it on on my bracelet. I have them around Mm -hmm. my computer monitor. Um, Just just little subtle reminders, I feel like really do go a long way. You're you're such a fascinating, interesting, deep thinker who's done the inner work, uh, learned from so many people. If if you could do this, I I know you have a podcast, but like long form Mm -hmm. conversation, just sit down for an evening with anyone dead or alive. Who would you love having a deep conversation with?
1: Yeah, so uh, you actually mentioned, Joseph Campbell would be my answer. Uh, right. Because I think that uh I think that what he has done uh looking at how humanity has grown from where we started to where we are and what we understand about purpose and meaning and what the the deeper por- like portions of life are, that is so immensely fascinating. And it's such uh, a space that I would love to learn and grow in. I think he'd be an absolutely incredible one to sit down with. Um I guess my my More technical, more more sort of like micro answer would probably be Anders Ericsson, um, who did all the work about sort of like what is somewhat misquoted as the 10,000 hour rule, but also really thinks about sort of um, uh, learning and deliberate practice. Because I'm so fascinated by this idea of what do we know about how humans get better at things, Hmm. Because I want to get better at stuff, yeah. right? Like, like <laughs> I want to learn how to get better at it. I want to learn how my brain works in a way that allows me to leverage that as,
0: as much as possible. Oh, two exceptional answers. I know one of the things you do at the end of, of your interviews is, is you issue them a challenge or yeah. have them issue a challenge for everyone. What would be a challenge for, for the listeners of this show?
1: Yeah, man, I, I think the challenge is, is the wedge in the wheel right how do you use these simple machines in your life today how do you use them this week how do you know if you're using them the right way at the end of the month right so the wedge if you want to get better at learning under pressure at performing under pressure and if you're listening to this podcast you probably do right how do you apply those ideas in really low wedge scenarios so can you identify low wedge scenarios in your day-to-day life and then the wheel how do you consciously design experiments. Now, we didn't talk as much about that, but if you break it down basically into, here's my hypothesis. I think this will let me do better. Here's, how I, here's what I measure. Here's how I know if I'll be doing better. And here's what I'm going to do to reflect on that thing. Right, And you have that micro experiment created like that. So my challenge is find some low-wedge places and run an experiment and just see what it feels like.
0: Dan, you mentioned serving the world. Uh, I'm telling you, a lot of your work, your ideas, your concepts, how you put them into practice uh, have really served me. I I know they're impacting other people. We're we're certainly gonna have everything that that you're involved with linked up. Uh, Obviously your book, The Emergency Mind, The Emergency Mind Project as well. Is there anything else you wanna leave the listeners with? I know we only literally like touch the surface here. I could literally have had a 20 hour podcast with you and I know your book dives a lot into more of like the tactical, how we take this and Mm. bring it into reality. But anything else you wanna leave the listeners with?
1: No, I think, I think the book is is the beginning. It's a it's a beginning vocabulary about performing under pressure. And what I what I would want is if people pick that up is for them to surpass it as quickly as possible and make it useless and obsolete. Hmm. And to take those words, that vocabulary that we're building out of this, and start making sentences and stories out of it, and to really get better. And then I want to hear about it because I want to know what you come up with because I got to get better too. And what I want is this culture of people that train together to perform better under pressure um, and that we create as much uh, dialogue and back and forth about that as possible.
0: Oh, that speaks to me too. I wanna create ripples out there, but then it creates an ecosystem that we all get to feedback and grow together. Dan, this has been fascinating. I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Uh, My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through.